Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 3, Chapter 5, Manotok the Mighty. At breakfast the next morning, Rick and Scotty were subjected to an amused scrutiny by Tony. He ticked off the items on his fingers. Rick has a slight mouse under one eye, and his left arm seems a little stiff. I noticed he sat down gingerly. There's a very pronounced bruise on the side of his jaw. Hands would indicate that he has been playing with a rather rough cat, except that I happen to know that he was scrambling around in some cadena de amor. Scotty is also wearing a mouse under one eye, perhaps a little more prominent than Rick's, and he has a long scratch behind the left ear, obviously caused by some sharp instrument. The archaeologist grinned. If you do that to each other, what would you do to an enemy? The boys grinned back. I can't tell you until we catch an enemy, Rick replied. Actually, most of my terrible wounds came from falling down. Same here, Scotty agreed. And that sharp instrument you mentioned, that was the edge of a tin can. Tony spooned succulent orange-colored papaya melon with appreciation. Have either of you figured out what our Ifugwe friend, let's assume he was an Ifugwe, wanted in my room last night? The only answer I can think of is the obvious one, Rick answered. He probably thought we have a map or something that showed the location of the Golden Skull, and he wanted that. I accept the hypothesis only because I don't have a better one, Tony said. How about you, Scotty? Scotty shrugged. I can't buy it. But, on the other hand, I don't have any other theory. If Sherlock Holmes was here. We could use him, Briati admitted. Well, what's on the program for today? Off to Baguio, Rick replied. But first, we'll have to rent or buy a truck. The plane can't carry us plus our gear, and we'll need the truck to take our stuff into the mountains. Scotty and I can do that. What are your plans? Well, there's an American anthropologist here I'd like to see. He's internationally known. Name of J. Walter McGowan. I made a tentative appointment yesterday. I'm sure he'll have some information on the Ifugues that will be of interest. Probably Okola has included in his papers everything that McGowan knows, but I'd like to speak with him just to get the feel of things, so to speak. Now why don't you do that this morning, Rick suggested. We'll get the truck, load the gear, and get ready to take off. Wonder where that Filipino angel is, Scotty asked. Wasn't he supposed to be here this morning? I don't think a coal has specified a time, Tony replied. And the morning is still pretty young. That was true enough, Rick thought. Besides, you had the impression that the Filipinos, although they followed Western customs, had the Far Easterners' disregard of time. If the angel doesn't arrive, one of us is going to have to drive the truck to Baguio, Tony said. I had hoped he would take the truck, then we three could fly. Scotty asked with deceptive casualness, Tony, what do you think of Dr. Cola? Tony answered promptly, He's a first-rate scientist and a distinguished gentleman. Why are you asking? Do you trust him? Implicitly. We're not dealing with a stranger here, Scotty. Cola's name has been known to me since I first became interested in archaeology. We've got lots of mutual friends, and he has been very helpful and courteous since this project was first proposed. Yeah, I trust him.
That's good, since we're buying the services of this angel purely on his say-so. We'll have to trust angel. We have no choice. True, I'm prepared to trust him simply because Okola said we could. Rick nodded agreement. I'll take him on faith, too. He had learned not to be over-trustful in far places among strangers, but he agreed with Tony's estimate of Okola. The man, he believed, was just what he seemed to be, a Filipino scientist and a gentleman. He had liked Okola. All right, Scotty said. I'll go along. Okola seemed like a real compadre. But how about Lizada? You trust him? Tony considered. He finished his papaya, then tackled a mango salad, an unusual but delicious breakfast dish. I don't distrust him. That's negative, but the best I can do. He's not the type of individual who appeals to me very much, but without further evidence, I hesitate to mark him as untrustworthy. I have a hunch, Rick said. My hunch says that Mr. Lazada is crooked as a helical coil. I wouldn't trust him anywhere at any time. Scotty agreed. I would have said he's no straighter than the cutting edge of a saw. But he's just about that sharp, too. Trouble with you, Tony, is, is you're too civilized. You see the best in everything, including people. Don't you? Tony asked mildly. The boys chuckled. Of course they did, and Tony knew it. But on an expedition like this, their suspicions came to the fore, and they automatically distrusted everyone. Lack of distrust had caused them much trouble in the past, and had come close to costing them their lives several times. The headwaiter approached. There's a man to see Dr. Piotti. Shall I have him wait? That must be Okola's guy, Tony said. No, bring him in here. Please. The three watched with interest as the head waiter went to the door and returned, leading a short, dark man. Rick examined him with interest. At first glance, the Filipino seemed quite short, as so many of his race are. Then Rick's discerning eyes saw the breadth of his shoulders, and he saw that the man wasn't really very short. He only seemed to be because of his extraordinary shoulder width. The man was dressed simply but neatly in typical Filipino style, with white trousers and white shirt. The shirt had no tail, but was square-cut at the bottom, like a sports shirt. The collar was sports shirt style, too, worn open and disclosing a muscular throat. The man bowed slightly. Dr. Briotti. I am Briotti, he indicated the boys. Mr. Brant and Mr. Scott, and you are? I am on Hell Monotalk at your service. Dr. Okola said you needed a driver, guide, and general handyman. He said that he had recommended me. Yeah, please, sit down. Will you have breakfast with us? Some coffee, perhaps. I have already had breakfast. Angel Monotalk had a strong, square face. Rick thought he looked very much like an American Indian. His hair was thick and very black and freshly cut into a sort of crew cut. You will want to see my papers, Angel said. He produced a wallet and extracted several documents. The spindrifters examined them. There was a Philippine driver's license, a United States Army driver's license indicating that the bearer was qualified to drive military vehicles, an honorable discharge from the Philippine scouts, which was part of the United States Army, and a certificate from the Philippine Public Health Service certifying that Angel Monotalk, as of three weeks ago, had been x-rayed 
and found free of tuberculosis. So you were in the Philippine Scouts, Scotty remarked. Angel grinned, showing strong white teeth. I have been many things, including a scout. I have also been a lumberjack in Zimbales province, a gold miner in Baguio, and a farmer in Mindanao. You, you speak remarkably good English, Tony commented. Thank you, sir. You will notice from my discharge I was a sergeant in the Philippine Scouts. I had the advantage of American military schools. I also attended college, the Ateneo de Manila, which has American Jesuit priests as teachers. I did not graduate, unfortunately, but I did learn your language rather better than most Filipinos. Rick liked Angel at once. He nodded at Tony and Scotty, and they nodded back. Tony at once began discussing salary and general arrangements with Angel. When they had reached an agreement, Angel grinned. Now I can tell you, since Dr. Okola was very anxious for me to go with you, I was prepared to work for you for just food. But a salary is much better. Much, Tony agreed. We prefer it that way, too, although I appreciate your loyalty to Dr. Okola. Where's your baggage? Rick asked. I left it outside of the desk. I haven't much to carry along, just work clothes and a few tools. Where can you get a truck? Scotty inquired. What kind would you like? Rick answered. An army six by six, if possible. That can be done. Rent or buy? Which do you suggest? Rent. Let me do it for you. I can bargain much better than you can. Fine, Rick agreed. We'll go with you and watch. Angel shook his head. Oh, you'd better not. If the dealer knows the truck is for Americans, the price will go up. If he thinks it's just for a Filipino, the price will be low. Let me get a truck. I'll be sure it's a good one and meet you here. Rick considered that a moment. No, let's make another plan. I want to spend a little more time checking over my plane. Suppose you get the truck and then meet us at Hangar 18 at the airport. We can come back here after that and load after lunch. Then we can fly to Baguio while you follow with the truck. Have you ever driven to Baguio? Scotty asked. Oh, many times. It takes between six and seven hours, depending on the traffic. Some parts of the road aren't very good, and the traffic piles up. Then if you leave at noon, you should be in Baguio at dinner time. Yes. Shall I go now? I will need a hundred pesos. That is for the deposit on the truck. Tony opened his billfold. Let's see. That's fifty bucks. Is American money okay? Angel smiled. American money is always all right. Everywhere. I will get a truck and then come to the airport. Yes? Yes. And glad to have you with us, Rick said. Scotty and Tony echoed his remark, and they shook hands all around. Angel tucked the pesos into his wallet and hurried out. Good deal. He's a lot of man, Scotty said. Do you notice those shoulders? His hands show he's used to work. I like him. Rick and Tony did too, and said so. I feel better about him going off alone with our stuff, Rick said. Yeah, except for the s, Scotty added, referring to the earth scanner. You heard what he said about the road to Baguio? That's a delicate gadget. We don't want it banged around too much. Yeah, you've got a point, Rick agreed. We should probably take it on the plane with us, huh? Well, that's a good idea, Scotty rose. Tony, we'll go to the airport and meet you here at about 1130, okay? 
That'll give me plenty of time, the scientist hesitated. I know you'll take care of yourselves. Remember that we have a sniper after us, not to mention in a fugue with no pallet. Incidentally, I suspect that our friend Angel has a little Igorot or fugue blood. Did you notice he kind of resembles an American Indian? I did, Rick said. Would it be unusual for him to have Igorot blood? Not particularly. There is some intermarriage of Christian Filipinos with the pagans. Also, Angel may have some Chinese blood, which would account for the unusually high cheekbones and rather flat face. He doesn't have the epicathic fold that gives the appearance of slanted eyes, but that doesn't mean anything. Lots of Filipinos with Chinese blood lack it. What are the Filipinos anyway? Scotty asked as they walked to the door. Well, originally the Filipinos were of almost pure Malay blood, but there was lots of intermarriage with the Chinese and the Spanish, and now, particularly around Manila, mestizos, which is what persons of mixed race are called, are very common. Tony hailed a taxi at the door, and the boys went to their room. Rick had put a thread across the bottom of the casement window. It was not disturbed, nor was the chair he had carefully placed so that anybody coming through the door would move it slightly. There had been no prowlers while they were at breakfast. The boys opened the case containing the earth scanner and lifted out the leather carrying cases, which contained the electronic controls and amplifiers, they carried the cases down to the lobby and took a cab to the airport. The ride was pleasant since the way to the airport was along Dewey Boulevard, which edged Manila Bay. Far across the bay they could see the American naval station at Cavite, and to the north was Maravellas Mountain on the Bataan Peninsula. Here and there the sail of a banca dotted the brown water. In the bancas, outrigger canoes, were fishermen. Large part of the Filipino diet was fish. The highway branched away from the bay finally, and a short time later they arrived at the modern airport, once the American Air Corps base of Nichols Field. The sky wagon was as they had left it, apparently undisturbed, but they were not taking anything for granted. Rick and Scotty checked the plane over literally inch by inch, searching for signs of tampering. As Rick examined the landing struts, a shadow fell across the doorway. He looked up to see an American watching him. The American stepped forward. He was a medium height with close-cropped sandy hair. He wore a yellow t-shirt under a white linen coat. His trousers were gray rayon and his footgear open-work sandals. He looked comfortable and cool even in the broiling Filipino sun. Rick judged him to be about 40 years old. You mind if I look? the man asked. Not at all, Rick answered politely. He hesitated, then introduced himself and Scotty, who had come around from the other side of the plane. My name is Nast, James Nast. You two must be part of the scientific party I read about in the Manila Bulletin. I didn't know anything about us had been in the papers, Rick replied. Yeah, this morning, Nast said. He took a tabloid-sized paper from his pocket unfolded it to the item and handed it to them. The item was brief. It merely stated that a party headed by Dr. Anthony Briotti with Mr. Richard Brandt and Mr. Donald Scott had been entertained by the Assistant Secretary of the Interior at a dinner party prior to their departure to Mountain Provinces to search for primitive artifacts. 
Dr. Ricola of the University of the Philippines, local advisor to the American Party, also had attended the dinner. Lozada must have given that out to the press, Rick remarked. Probably, Nast agreed. Filipino politicals are like that. They live on publicity. Please don't let me intrude. I came to the airport to meet a shipment from Hong Kong, but the plane is late, so I've been wandering around sightseeing. Are you in business? Scotty asked. Yeah. Import-export. I import Chinese silver, both alloyed and pure, and have it fabricated by Filipinos, mostly into filigree work. Then I export it to America. I also import Siamese and Indo-Chinese silks, which are made into all sorts of things, and then exported to America. I was expecting a silk shipment this morning. My agent in Hong Kong gets it from Siam and Indochina and forwards it here. You been out here long? Rick inquired. Since the war. I first came here when I was in the Navy. Liked it so well, I took my discharge here and stayed. Gonna be in Manila long? Uh, just a few hours, Rick said, wiping sweat from his face. We're going to Baguio. So am I. Maybe I'll see you there. Really? What's Baguio like? Plenty of local color, and the weather is great. It's high in the mountains and very cool. You'll sleep under blankets tonight, and so will I. Nast wiped his face, too. This shipment goes by truck to Baguio. I'm going to ride along with it. He wiped his face again. Why don't you take your coat off? Scotty asked. Nast grinned. Because I've got a thirty-eight automatic and a shoulder holster. The boys stiffened. Rick and Scotty exchanged glances. The road to Baguio isn't the safest in the world, Nast explained. It's fairly peaceful now, but bandits still operate up there through Papania province. I carry a gun to discharge interest in my shipments. Now that he had mentioned it, Rick could see the bulge of the shoulder holster. But it was a good job of tailoring, and he realized that the linen jacket had been made to conceal the shoulder gun. The plane from Hong Kong won't be in for at least a half an hour. Mind if I stick around? It's a pleasure to talk to Americans. I deal mostly with Filipinos out in the barrios, the small towns where my fabricating is done, and I don't see Americans very often. Glad to have you if you don't mind our going ahead with our work, Rick told him. Don't let me get in the way. Go right ahead. The boys did so, and Rick explained the fine points of the Skywagon to Nast while he worked to check every possible point of sabotage. He liked talking about his plane. It was something to be proud of and Nast was an interested listener who apparently knew something about airplanes. After the checkup, they rolled the plane outside, and Rick warmed up the engine. Then, while he was testing the radio, Angel Monotok arrived with a truck. Rick immediately shut the engine off and got out, curious to see what Angel had found. Scotty was already looking it over, with Nast, an interested spectator. Rick introduced him to Angel and then asked, Is it in good condition? Very good. The man said it had been overhauled recently, and I believe him. The tires are in good condition, and there are two spares. The truck was a typical army vehicle with double rear wheels, both front and rear drive, and a winch on the front. The motor purred sweetly. Angel had apparently done well. Nast asked, Going to use both the truck and the plane, or will you leave the plane at Bagueo? We're not sure, Rick said. Depends on whether we find a landing place at Bontoc. Have you been there? 
A few times. There are no decent fields, but you can land on the road. It's blacktop, and there are a few power lines or phone lines. I'm sure you could do it. Glad to hear that, Rick said, relieved. To Scotty and on hell, he said. We could go on back to the hotel and load the truck. We'll have to check the plane engine before takeoff anyway. You think the plane will be safe here? Scotty asked. Sure, we'll put it in the hangar and lock the door. I notice that the airport guards go by pretty often. Besides, the plane has been all right so far. I guess you're right, Scotty agreed. But let's put the alarm out, okay? The alarm was a very loud horn wired into a circuit, which caused it to go off if the plane was so much as touched. Rick set it, then locked the door of the plane. Removing the key from the lock activated the circuit, and then closed and locked the hangar door. The plane would be all right. Nast was talking to Anhel, Monotok, and Tagalog. Anhel was replying, but not very enthusiastically. Rick spoke up. Wow, you speak the local language pretty well, Mr. Nast. Have to, Nast said cheerfully. The Filipino families that work for me can't speak English, often as not. Well, good hunting. Perhaps we'll meet in Baguio. The boys shook hands. Good luck to you. Hope your shipment arrives. It will. The planes from Hong Kong are usually late. The airport there is closed up half the time from fog. Good luck. The boys got into the truck with Angel, and he drove out to the main highway. What were you and Nas talking about? Scotty asked. Angel took his time about answering. He just wanted to know when we were going to Baguio. I think he was making small talk. Maybe he wanted to show off his Tagalog. Was his Tagalog good? Rick asked. Yes, very good. Angel said no more, and Rick wondered for a moment what had Nast really said. He decided it wasn't of any importance. Perhaps Nast was one of those Americans who always talked to people of other lands in a half-insulting way. Rick had met them. They were mighty poor advertisements for America. They parked the truck behind the hotel and took Angel to their room. We'll get help and have the crates carried down for you, Rick said. Angel grinned. Why bother? You two take one, I'll take the other. The boys looked at each other. True, the crates weren't huge, but each was a hefty load for two men. Stop bragging, Scotty said. The jocular tones of his voice made a playful challenge of the words. Angel took the challenge. He went to the largest crate, swung it easily to his head, and balanced it with one hand. Let's go, he said, grinning. Scotty stepped forward, blood in his eye, and tackled the second crate. He got it up, but it was obvious it was too much of a load even for his above-normal strength. Rick lent a hand, and they carried the crate along behind Angel, who walked as though he had a feather pillow balanced on his head. Monotok the Mighty, Scotty said, and there was genuine awe in his voice. Angel pronounced his name in the Spanish style, but now he shifted to the English pronunciation and said, I'm an angel, and my strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure. The boys laughed. That was first applied to Galahad, wasn't it? Rick asked. Don't know, Angel replied, but I like it anyway. The crates took up little room in the truck. Angel lashed them in, then the three went to the main dining room to meet Tony. They had time for a glass of limeade before the scientist showed up. He came to the table and asked, 
Do you know a guy by the name of Nast? Rick's eyebrows went up. Yeah, we met him this morning. Why? He left a phone message at the desk. He wants you to call him. Rick rose and went to the lobby, puzzled. What could Nast possibly want? He got the number that Nast had left. It turned out to be the freight office of the airport. Then there was a wait while the man was paged. At last he came to the phone. Brant? Nast here. Look, I'm terribly sorry to impose on such short acquaintance, but I need to ask you a favor. My shipment came in, but now I can't get a truck. The one I usually ship on has a regular run, and the driver took off for Bagueo without checking, so I'm stranded. If you don't have too much of a load, could I ride along with your Filipino driver? My shipment only weighs about 200 pounds. Rick considered. Nothing in the truck would be in danger. The earth scanner was safely stowed in the luggage compartment of the plane. Nast added, I'll be glad to pay for the trip. It'll save me waiting over until tomorrow. Uh, there's no need for that. We'll be glad to accommodate you. Meet you at the hangar in an hour. He hung up very thoughtful. Why should his instincts rebel against doing Nast such a small favor? Again, he told himself that no harm could come of it. Even if Nast was a finger man for a bandit gang, he would get nothing except clothes and ordinary, easily replaced tools. And it was ridiculous to imagine the American was any such thing. True, he was not an educated man, but that meant less than nothing. Education as such has little to do with honesty. No, Nast was just an American sailor who had decided to stay in the tropics and apparently was making a go of it in a business way. Let him ride, Rick thought. It'll be okay. He can't do any damage. I guess. Chapter 6 Chada Checks In Rick had expected the flight to Baguio to be a snap. As it turned out, he had to call for help. Angel Monotok carried the three spin drifters to the airport in the truck, Rick and Scotty, riding in the back. Then Angel departed for Bagueo with Nast and his bundle of silks. Rick checked in at the Philippine Aeronautics Commission, seeking information on the airport at Bagueo. He took one look at the approach pattern and gulped. The approach was between high mountains, down a valley, then up a mountainside. What made it worse was that one mountain looked much like another on the topographical map. He exclaimed, That's a rugged landing field to find. The Filipino official smiled. You have maybe Navy flying experience? No, why? Best experience for landing at Bagueo is making landings on aircraft carriers. Thanks, Rick said. Any advice? Yes, go to Philippine Airlines. Talk to flight dispatcher. PAL flight leaves here maybe in two hours, just right for you. Fly to rendezvous. Pretty soon, along comes PAL flight and you follow in. The advice was pretty good, Rick realized. He could not do better than follow a regular airline flight into the field. He did as directed and met the pilot of the next Bagueo flight, a former Filipino pilot in the United States Air Force, and was told the approximate time the PAL flight would pass the Kenon Road Horseshoe Curve for the Bagueo approach. Uh, follow Kenon Road, 
the pilot advised. Pick me up when I go over the curve. You can't mistake the place. Nothing else like it. Rick made arrangements. Tony and Scotty loaded their personal suitcases into the luggage compartment with the earth scanner. Scotty started the engine and checked the plane so that it was warm when Rick arrived. They took off at once and headed north across the great plain of Luzon. The landscape below was flat, cut up by creeks and estuaries. It was perfect rice country. Later, they passed Mount Arayat, once the hideout of the Huk Malahap, the lawless forces that had been such a threat to Philippine stability. Ahead of them rose the mountains of northern Luzon. Within those mountains, they would find Maguayo and Mountain Province. Rick picked up the Kennan Road without trouble as it wound its way through the foothills. Saying hi, he followed it until he reached a great switchback curve. A car following that road would literally double back on itself, he thought. He glanced at his watch. The PAL plane would be along in just about two minutes. The pilot had estimated Rick's flying time perfectly. Rick climbed, then circled until Scotty saw the twin-engine transport approaching. The PAL pilot waggled his wings, and Rick followed as the airliner throttled down, swung between the mountain peaks, and threaded its way down a wide valley. Rick gulped. Good thing he had an experienced pilot to follow. He would never have found this way alone. The peaks were completely confusing to someone who had never seen them before. The airliner turned suddenly, and Rick's heart leapt into his throat. He thought the PAL plane was flying right into the mountainside. But such was not the case. The plane settled down on a landing strip that had been hewn from a mountaintop. It was obvious what the PAL official had meant when he joked about carrier landings. Rick followed the PAL plane in and had to fight down his instinctive feeling to gain altitude when he saw the mountainside rushing at him. He nearly overshot the landing strip, but then the sky wagon was down and he taxied toward the control station. Scotty wiped his brow. That was some landing field. Next time we'll be okay, Rick replied. This time I aged ten years, though. The Filipino pilot walked to meet them, grinning. How do you like Baguio Airport? I've landed on fields I liked a lot better, Rick replied. Thanks for leading us in, though. You're welcome. I remember my first landing. Couldn't fly again for a week. All I could think of was spreading my passengers all over the hillside. But only the first time is hard. We fly in and out of here several times a day, and we've never had a serious accident. Your airline doesn't go in for accidents, Tony Briotti said. You've got a remarkable safety record. We do our best, the pilot said. Going into town? I am. I have a car behind the control shack. Be glad to give you a lift. Thanks a million, Rick answered. First, I have to make arrangements for the plane, though. The pilot grinned. None to make. No hangers. No service except gas. Just stake it down and lock the door. It'll be all right. It had to be all right. There was nothing else to do. The spindrifters took the earth scanner and their personal luggage, then locked the plane, leaving the alarm activated. As an afterthought, Rick left a duplicate key with the Filipino field official. Someone might touch it casually and set the alarm off, and it would sound until the door was unlocked and relocked again with the key. He explained how it worked and then joined the pilot and his friends in the official airline car. The pilot dropped them at Mueller's, a combination boarding house and old-fashioned inn. 
They checked in and then climbed a nearby hill for a view of Baguio. As far as the eye could see, there were mountains. Steep ridges and deep clefts made a picturesque jumble of the landscape. Beyond, over the ridge, was the Trinidad Valley, a farm garden area where the American colony of the Philippines got most of its temperate zone vegetables and fruit. On the other side of town was the Golden Bowl of Benguet, where fabulous gold mines were worked by Igorot miners clad only in breech cloths and hard rock helmets. Baguio itself was a modern city in most respects, but the population, a strange mixture of Christian Filipinos and primitive pagan Igorots, was unusual. The Filipinos wore typical Western dress and actually dressed pretty warmly. The Igorot men wore breechcloths, usually with a shirt or sweater, perhaps with nothing at all. Some of the men had tiny pillbox caps of woven straw on the backs of their heads. The little round boxes were decorated with such oddments as boar's tusks and coke bottle caps. The Igorot women wore tight-fitting skirts of colorful wool, usually patterned in red or yellow. They wore blouses of embroidered white cotton or jackets of colored wool. Their skirts had balls of yarn on the hips. The women wore no hats. Both sexes were usually barefoot. There were contrasts. For example, next to the great Christian cathedral was the Igorot dog market. The Igorots, you see, were eaters of dog meat. But it was not the Igorots or the mountains that had made Baguio famous and turned it into the summer capital of the Philippines. It was the climate. While Manila burned in the tropical sun, Baguio, thousands of feet higher, had cool fall-like weather. There was hardly a night during the year when blankets were not comfortable. Even the foliage was temperate rather than tropical. Baguio had pine trees, a welcome sight to the Spindrift Trio. There was a tall, fragrant pine just outside the window of the room shared by Rick and Scotty. When the boys returned to their rooms to wash up for an early dinner, Rick leaned out and broke off a pine cone. Then, by reaching only a little bit further, he grabbed a cluster of purple-red blossoms from a Bugovilia vine that had climbed the tree to their second-floor height. In the comfortable dining room, they chose a table in front of a roaring fireplace, glad of its warmth. It was chilly in Baguio. While they waited to be served, Rick mentioned the pine tree to Tony and commented it was odd that a tree should be so close to a building. The forest practices of the Igoras and Fugues could well be copied by us, Tony told the boys. Anyone who cuts down a tree for anything other than genuine use is severely punished. In the old days, the punishment might have been loss of his head. That's how much respect they have for their water supply, which is pretty much directly dependent on their forests. We talk as though these were civilized people, Scotty commented. Tony grinned. Depends on what you call civilization, but they have a very highly developed and complex culture. They have history, too, which they know better than we know ours. For instance, in a Fugway can recite his ancestry as far back as 25 generations. Can you do that? Not sure I'd want to, Scotty retorted. Might be a few horse thieves along the way. Seriously, I see what you mean. A priest must know all about 1,500 different gods and all the legends and taboos connected with all of them. 
No written books to consult either. All of this has to be memorized. That certainly proves that they have good memories, Rick said. I'm not sure what else it proves. Wait until you see the rice terraces. Let's order dinner now. This cool air has whetted my appetite like a razor's edge. After a delicious meal of broiled steak, fresh vegetables from Trinidad Valley, and the huge strawberries for which the valley is famous, the three lingered over coffee, and Tony recited more details of the Igorot and Ufugwe way of life, so different from their own. In the midst of this recital, Angel Monotok arrived. Did you have a good trip? Rick asked. Yes, no trouble. That truck is a beauty. What do you want me to do now? Rick handed him the keys to their room. You're pretty dusty. Wash up, eat, then go to the airport. You'll find a spare bedroll in the crate you carried by yourself back to the Manila Hotel. Keep an eye on the plane. We'll join you at breakfast time. Although there was no reason to suspect that anyone would harm the plane, none of them felt comfortable about leaving it unguarded. They were sure it would be safe during the daylight hours, but darkness afforded an opportunity for sabotage. Angel took the keys and went on his way. In a short time, he returned and gave the keys back to Rick and said, I'll get supper at the Filipino place. I will see you in the morning. Wow, he's really businesslike, Tony said approvingly. No waste of words or motion. I think we were lucky to get him. The boys agreed. I wonder how he and Nass got along, Rick queried. I forgot to ask him. He probably dropped off Nast in his silks before he came here, Scotty commented. At Tony's suggestion, they walked around town, taking in the interesting marketplace, the several cathedrals, the summer palace of the Philippines' president, and the parks. But Guayo was different, and very peaceful and pleasant. As they walked, they discussed their plans for the next day. Rick and Tony were to fly to Bontoc, which was still in Igorot country, then crossed the mountain to Banawe, which was the objective of the trip, the land of the Fugues and home of the fabled rice terraces. It was to be a non-stop trip, mostly to familiarize Rick with the terrain. At the same time, Scotty and Angel were to go by truck to Bontoc, several hours' drive to the north. They would remain overnight. If Scotty could arrange a landing place for the sky wagon, he would phone Rick at Mueller's. Then Rick and Tony would fly up the next morning. Scotty was a pilot himself, so he knew the requirements for a good landing strip. If no suitable landing place were available, Rick and Tony would hire a jeep and drive to Bontoc. Jeeps were common in the Philippines, since they were ideal vehicles for the backcountry. Hiring one would present no problems. With no landing place available, the sky wagon would not come into use until the expedition found artifacts of value. Then Rick would return to Baguio, get the plane, pick up the discoveries by cable, and deliver the stuff to Ocola in Manila for safekeeping and preliminary examination. The exercise and cool freshness of the air made them sleepy, and presently, by mutual consent, they returned to Mueller's. Might as well get to bed early, Tony said. Then we can get up at dawn and get off to an early start. Good night, boys. The boys bid him good night and went down to their own room, a few doors down the hall. 
Scotty unlocked the door and swung it open, then let out a yell of joy. Chada was sprawled on one of the beds reading a magazine. The Hindu boy was dressed in western clothes, slacks, and a sport jacket. He looked up as the door opened. Hello, he said casually. Did you have a nice walk? It was though they had left him reading while they went for a stroll. Chada's casualness was too much for Rick and Scotty. They dove for him and hauled him out of bed and pummeled him with sheer delight. Finally, Chada yelled for mercy. I give in. Plenty okay. I'm glad to see you too. Please do not break my leg. I may need it. You no good, Swami, Scotty said. What was the idea of playing seek? The boys sat down in the bed opposite Chada. Come on, talk, Rick commanded. What kind of gag is this? The best way to learn about people is to be one of them, Chada said with dignity. I have been Filipino and Sikh. Now I become Igorot. First I learned about this new country from the Almanac. It says this is the largest group in the Mele Archipelago. What is an archipelago? Rick saw the twinkle in Chada's eyes and knew that their friend was following his usual custom of teasing them. Archipelago is the black sheep of the Pelago family. Archie first fell from grace when he got into a fight with the neighbors. It was a real melee, hence his name, Mele Archipelago. A pillow caught him in the face, smothering his words. Scotty pushed him over the bed and sat on him. Come on, Chada, I'm so curious I could spring a seam. What's going on? Chada squirmed, got nowhere, and finally sank his teeth into Scotty hard enough to get results. Scotty let out a yell that could have been heard in Singapore. Tony Briotti pounded on the door and called, How do you expect a paying guest to sleep with that racket going on in there? The boys let him in and introduced him to Chada. Tony shook hands with the Hindu boy. You know, I was beginning to think you were a figment of the well-known spindrift imagination. It's a pleasure to meet you. Likewise, I am honored to meet a brilliant young scientist. My worthless friends tell me they call you by a nickname, while other scientists are called by a title. This is a mark of high esteem, I think. I'm glad to meet you, Sahid Tony. Chada was just going to give us the lowdown, Rick said. Is that what that yelling was about? Tony asked. Scotty yelled, Rick said. Must have been a mosquito that bit him. That mosquito is going to get swatted when he least expects it. Scotty promised. Come on, Chada, spin us a yarn. All right. Chada sat cross-legged on Rick's bed. You know I went to the Manila Hotel. For three days I waited. Then one day, I sat next to the famous assistant secretary of the exterior. Interior, Rick corrected. You mean Lazada? Yes. And soon he is met by a friend who sits with him. The friend is not known to me. But I listen. And I hear Lazata's friend say that soon Americans who will dis... dis... What is ruin religious things, please? Desecrate, Tony supplied. Yes, they do that to sacred Ifugwe things. This friend begs Lazata not to give permit. The three spindrifters were sitting on the edges of the beds now, concentrating on every word. The friend says Americans would dig up rice terraces looking for gold. Sacred objects of gold would be carried away, and earthquakes and drafts 
would fall on the Fugue people. Uh, you mean earthquakes and droughts, Rick corrected. That is what I said, earthquakes and drafts, Chara nodded. Lazada objects that these are not real gold things, and the friend says they are. Real gold, much gold, all very sacred. Again, he begs Lazada not to allow this sacrilege. Sacrilege. Yes, anyway, Lazada says Americans have much influence. He does not know if he can stop them, but he will try. I did not believe he talked the truth, but his looks do not make me trust him, you know? The boys knew. When the friend leaves, I think, I follow him. And he starts out, then he meets an American on the steps of the hotel. I get close and listen, and he says to the American, How would you like to add gold to your smuggling into China? Rick whistled. He had heard the smuggling gold from the Philippines into China was big business. The American says he would like that plenty. Where's the gold? Lazada says that we should not talk here. You should come to my house tonight. No, tomorrow. He said he had a big official dinner that night, and there is plenty of time. Then I decided I must know more. So I go to the number one Sikh in Manila and tell him he has a new strong boy to guard Lazada's. After I make sure Lazada has Sikh guards, this is arranged. No trouble. Chada always made it sound dramatic but easy. Rick doubted it was as simple as the Hindu boy had made out. The American comes, and I am not able to hear much of the talk, but I get the American's name. You know him since this morning. Nast! Rick exclaimed. Yes, also comes to Lazada's house the Filipino friend, but he is not Filipino. He is a Fugue. About him I do not know, except that he is called No Palette, or something like that. I would like to follow him, but I think better. I stay with Lazada. Good thing, too, because Nast comes again, and this time I listen. Lazada tells Nast first to meet you, so you will know and trust him. Then Nast is to get in touch with No Palette. Lazada says he has told No Palette that he cannot keep permit from you, but that American friend will help you keep from digging up Ifugwe's sacred things. Chada shrugged. What am I to do? I stop being Sikh. My number one Sikh buddy chum helps me meet Igorot, who used to be scout for constabulary, name of Dogmeat. Fine name. Dogmeat will help. I hire him. Need helper. Name Dogmeat for sure. He grinned. The boys chuckled and Tony explained. Well, that's actually a pretty honorable name. Dog meat is a ceremonial meat among the Igorots. That's the best reason I've heard for hiring anyone in a long time, Rick commented. Chada continued. This morning I tried to catch you at Manila, but I'd reached the hotel too late. And then the airport, but I was too late. But I do some watching and I find out a man with same description as Nast has been visiting you at the airport. You were already gone, and Nast was gone. Dogmeat and me, we take the next PAL plane to Baguio. When we get here, there is your Skywagon. At least I think it is yours, because it is like you told me in your letter. So I come here, but not directly to room, because I think maybe I better stay undercover. So I climbed the tree and came in the window. The Hindu boy made a gesture of all done. Next time you see me, I will be a Fugue, or maybe Igorot, maybe even Kalinga. 
He named another related pagan group. I will decide when I see you what is to be done. But already have a name. He smiled blandly. I have named myself Vascati. Rick moved out of the line of fire. Chad bowed. Meet Cowbrain. Scotty reached for him. Rick and Tony ducked.